if the expectation is in order to build a successful company, you need to basically drop everything, sleep under your desk, work 100 hours a week and do nothing else and don't have a life, you cut out a huge number of people who are incredibly talented and who have great ideas. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. So excited for our next guest, the one and only Jimmy Wales. You might know him as the founder of Wikipedia. I know him as my friend. We actually are young global leaders together at the World Economic Forum, sat in the same class and have traveled the world. I've seen him in action. He's an incredible tech entrepreneur and a friend and a parent and just a regular good old guy. We delve into femtech, sex ed on the internet, being a parent, what we need for our girls and what it means to be Jimmy Wales. Jimmy Wales. Kate Roberts. It's so good to have you. (laughs) Let's cast our minds back, gosh, 15 years ago, something like that, on how we met, because it's a good story. Mm. And little did I know that you were one of the most influential people in the world in tech. (laughs) Do you remember how we met? Yeah, we were were on a plane in China. And we were the only two people on the plane who were not Chinese. (laughs) And I thought, oh, we're probably going to the same place. So I tried to introduce myself. You basically blew me off. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, who's this white man bugging me? (laughs) Exactly. And then later... I don't know, you gave me a tic-tac. I did. An apology. <laughs> I did. And, you know, I will I will apologize again. You know, that, that we were off to, to Daliana, I believe, to the World yeah. Economic Forum. We're both in the same yeah. year of the Young Global Leaders. And you were so sweet to approach me, but I hadn't slept since I got on the airplane. And I'm like, it doesn't matter who you are. Just don't talk to me. I have to sleep. And then I felt bad and I approached you at, luggage and um, still no idea who you were. And then you extended your (laughs) hand and you said, let me introduce myself. My name is Jimmy Wales and I'm the founder of Wikipedia. And I went, oh, okay. Well, here's a TikTok. (laughs) Let's be friends. And that started, that started all. And that started it all. That started it all. And what a joy it has been getting to know you and watching your incredible progress throughout all the things that you've started. And, you know, we went on to have a lot of adventures together, actually, you know, being all over the world. Mm. We became Davos husband and wife. And for everyone listening, (laughs) what that means is we go to the conference in Davos that is hosted by the World Economic Forum. And Jimmy, you've been, you were so kind to me. We kind of sort of found each other in a way that I could offer you skills that you didn't have and and you could offer me skills that I didn't have, which are a lot, especially in tech. <laughs> and, you know, a quick story of one of my favorite Jimmy Wales moments was you said to me, Kate, uh, we're going to a, a little dinner tonight. You know, this was at Davos. And you said, we're going to a little dinner tonight. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm up for anything. And I find myself sitting... You are opposite me, and Mark Zuckerberg, for any of you who don't know, founded Facebook, which is impossible that you don't know. So he's sitting next to me. I think he was like 
24 at the time or something ridiculous. I, I was going to say 12. Yeah. yeah, well, he appeared to be 12, but I think he was 24. <laughs> and then we had Sergey from the founder of Google on the other side of me. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is like a moment. This is a Davos moment. <laughs> but anyway, Jimmy, what an adventure. What a joy it has been to get to know you. Obviously, I was there when you met your wife. We have children yeah. the same age. We both have daughters. You have a lot of daughters. I only have one daughter, but you have a lot of daughters. <laughs> and your daughters are all different ages. And yeah. so you're a parent. And you're a mm. parent to girls. Yeah. And that's amazing. So what we're going to talk about today is a little bit about, you know, you obviously founded Wikipedia. So first of all, let's get into that. Now you sit on the board of the foundation Huge misconception out there is that Wikipedia is a for-profit. So first mm. of all, give us the juice on Wikipedia and sure. set the record straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Wikipedia is a charity or a nonprofit organization organized as a charity. We're very community-driven. So when you when you see the website, everything that you see is done by the community. There's no big building with thousands of editors-in-chief in charge of it. It really is community-driven through and through. All of the editorial controls and even sort of the moderation, it's all done by the community directly. The foundation is mainly there to keep the site running, to build relationships, technology, et cetera, et cetera, and to collect uh, funding. And then we, we spend the funding on a lot of different things, but in particular, we support the community through local chapters all around the world. So it's a really... It's a very different model from the way most sort of tech organizations are put together. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you started Wikipedia? Because it's been around for a long time. Yeah, I was, I think, 33, 34. Okay. And did you one day just wake up and say, I'm going to start the largest educational tech platform in the world? Or <laughs> how did that go? I mean, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I, I, two years before Wikipedia, I launched a project called Newpedia which was the same vision to have a free encyclopedia for everyone written by volunteers. But I didn't know much about how to organize online community. And we had software that was very hard to use. It was all very top-down. And it took a couple of years to figure out that that top-down traditional model wasn't going to work and to say, oh, we need to be more open, more flexible. And then sort of relaunched with the wiki software, which just means a website anyone can edit. And very quickly started to have much more success. And it just grew and grew and grew. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take you to get it to where it really is right now? I mean, it is remarkable, Jimmy, what you've done. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you hear that every single day. But when you literally Google something or someone, the Wikipedia <laughs> page comes up first. And by the way, very quick question. My Wikipedia page is horribly outdated. <laughs> how do you change it? Because you're not allowed to change it yourself, right? Somebody has to do it for you. Yeah, that's, that's discouraged. I mean, if there's something you know, terribly wrong, it should just be fixed. So, you know, that's the sort of one exception. You could change it yourself if there's something just egregiously wrong. In general, we discourage it. I mean, I think the, the main thing to do is uh, just leave a note on the talk page. So every article has a talk page and just say, hey, this is really out of date. I wonder if somebody could update it. And here's some links to some sources that you might use to update it. And, you know, Usually somebody will go, oh, okay, hold on. We'll take a look at it. Mm. Okay, so you've been doing Wikipedia a long time. You now sit on the foundation. Everyone out there, it's a nonprofit. So make your donation. I make my donations. I love Wikipedia. 
It is a source, a great source. Now, let's get to Femtech. Obviously, I am in the Femtech business. You are a parent. I am a parent. Our babies, our little girls were born a week apart from one another. So you've got now, Uh like me, an 11-year-old. You've got an 11-year-old mm-hmm. girl, and you've also got a 21-year-old yep. girl. So you've been through that yep. whole thing where you needed to talk, or maybe you didn't talk to your your girls about the birds and the bees, puberty, you know, their bodies, periods, you know, everything that happens to us girls. Now, did you leave that mm. to your significant other, or did you do that yourself? And how did you use the internet to help you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say for the little ones who are 10 and 8, still so a little early. I mean, Ada's getting ready to go to secondary school, mm-hmm. so it's about time. And we have looked at, you know, the, the school has had a session on it, and then we discussed the session that they did at the school. Mm-hmm. With the older daughter, well, my ex-wife and I had split up, and so she was mainly living with her mom, and so her mom basically handled all of that, and I didn't didn't get involved. And I think that's probably... Not the best way to do it, but, you know, Mm. it it worked in that case. And there is a massive, massive lack. I guess you're lucky. I know you live in England now, and I think the Brits have got the sex ed maybe a little bit better down than we do here in America. But there is a big issue, and I want to talk to you about this, with Femtech and the restrictions that are put on putting out certain pieces of educational material just based on our bodies, right? You know, if you, mm. if, you, if you go to Facebook or Instagram, for instance, often content that talks about menopause or vulvas, you know, which are functional parts of the woman and girl's body, we get blocked. What do you know about that? I mean, there's, there's whole companies out there that specialize in various health mm. products to just again, just the normal functions that aren't able to put anything out there on the internet due to these blockages. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a this is a problem of algorithms, of, of trying to do everything with algorithms. It's one of the reasons that at Wikipedia, we don't really have very much in the way of algorithms at all. Everything is decided and done by people. And so what you what algorithms really miss is context and mm-hmm. understanding. So distinguishing between something that's a sort of a rude, vulgar attack or porn or a serious and thoughtful discussion of human sexuality is very easy for humans, right? You just read it over and you're like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Or actually this person's really being abusive to someone else, or that's just titillating porn. So it maybe shouldn't be on a family oriented platform. But for algorithms, it's just like keywords and trying to detect and it's very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that points to a fundamental model that goes beyond just that into, you know, right now we're we're struggling on the internet with the spread and the rise of misinformation and disinformation around, for example, COVID-19 and vaccines and so forth. And, you know, the tech company's response to that has been pretty weak. I mean, it hasn't been as good as, as we would have all hoped. But I'm also somewhat sympathetic because it's like a really hard problem because a an algorithm cannot read a paragraph of text and say that's disinformation. Yeah. The tech to actually understand what humans are talking about is in its real infancy. So it becomes really hard and and at Wikipedia we don't 
we don't use algorithms. So then it's it's human beings. And so mm-hmm. we've managed to deal with that, I think, quite well. I'm very proud of how our community mm-hmm. has really stuck to fact-based information and not gone down these conspiracy rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. No, it, that is true. So it's, so it's really a bot that's blocking us, not a human. That, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty mm. sure. So, yeah. so if you put the word vagina into Wikipedia, <laughs> will a description come up of what a vagina is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a. It's going to be pretty. You know, uh, I'm just calling up the page. I think it's probably uh, Jimmy. Jimmy. Wikipedia. Jimmy Wales is putting the word vagina into Wikipedia. <laughs> this has got to be a moment. Yeah. This is a it, moment. It's just. <laughs> Just like every other Wikipedia page, it goes on for miles. It's got uh, 252 references, so it's pretty good. You know, it's actually on this front. I mean, we have quite a lot of concepts in Wikipedia that you wouldn't expect in a traditional encyclopedia. I mean, I would hope that Britannica would have had vagina, but we will have an entry on, for example, anal sex. You will? I'm sure we do. I'm not going to look that up right now. Yeah. But <laughs> Wise. Um, so what I used to think is I just thought, oh, gosh, we've got all this stuff on there. And eventually I'm going to get hauled up on an interview on Fox News or somewhere and they're going to have a whack at me for this. But I'm like, you know what? If your kid is typing anal sex into a search engine, what do you want them to find? If you go and look at the Wikipedia page, I'm sure it's very boring, very straightforward. It explains what it is and it's not titillating and it's pretty much just the facts. And, you know, if Wikipedia didn't cover it, then what are they going to find? I have no idea what the second, third, fourth links are, but it's probably not sort of responsible information about something someone may want to know about. So yeah, we cover pretty much everything. I can absolutely assure you that, first of all, I commend you because I know that everything on Wikipedia is fact-based, science-driven, accurate, and as you say, quite well, quite, we bo- quite boring. <laughs> There's always errors. Yeah. yeah, apart from my profile, obviously. That's quite, that's quite interesting. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. And that's why Wikipedia is a great, great service. I can assure you when kids put in anal sex or anything, what will come up is Pornhub, what will come up, inappropriate stuff that we don't want our 11-year-olds watching or reading. And this is a problem, which is why also you know, what we're doing with the body agency is very similar to you, where we are, you know, science, medical driven, where we want the facts to be out there that's in a digestible manner so everyone can get educated and not get their education Mm -hmm. from porn. I found out the other day from, from an expert that 11 is the age that most kids have their first experience with porn and come across porn on the internet. Wow. Yeah. So... You know, that's not going away, right? We need to be able to talk to our kids and give our kids factual information. And I think boys, young boys now, are getting their sort of impression of what sex is from porn. So, you know, Mm. that's a problem as well. Because when we were growing up, right, we didn't have that. Maybe we had magazines or books. I mean, just barely or just about, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting because it's a very, it's a fundamental change that's not going away. And the truth is, I think part of the issue is that for all kinds of reasons, parents very, very often feel quite awkward talking about it to their children, probably because their parents were awkward talking Mm -hmm. to them about it. And it's sort of hard to to get through that, even though you may believe and, and certainly 
you know, think, right, I think basically we should be very upfront and objective with children and explain their questions about anything. But, you know, it's like, well, gee, nobody ever did that with me. So I'm not exactly sure what words to use or how to say it. So I think resources around that sex education for children of the, you know, age appropriate at the right time are incredibly valuable. Mm. I don't know what they are. I have to look that up. Well, go to the body agency and find out, Jimmy. Come on, come on. You're a tech entrepreneur. So what do you put down to, there's there's a boom. There is a boom now. There's a boom now with tech, right? We know that Silicon Valley is, is driving the world. What do you put down to this boom in, in femtech? You know, just, just the sort of menopause world is the marketplace mm. is about mm-hmm. 600 million. So... What do you put down to this? I mean, literally over the last two years, there's been an explosion in femtech. Mm. And I know it's not your area, although I know your 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 wife, yeah. the lovely Kate Garvey, drags you around to all the sustainable development goal conferences. We'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a minute. What do you put down to that explosion in femtech? Well, I mean, I, I think a, a big part of it is it's actually that the thing we have to think about and explain is why only now? It's not like the internet hasn't been here for a long time now. And I do think that there is a problem, you know, in Silicon Valley with, you know, there's a certain profile of what a tech entrepreneur looks like. And whatever the drivers are for that, which would include bias and sexism, but also just include certain pathways into tech, relationships, friends of friends, and so on. You know, the tech world has tended to be quite dominated by men and quite dominated by men in their 20s. And so... What do they care about? What do they know about? And you don't even have to be critical. You can just say, right, if you're a 23-year-old dude and you're trying to solve something, you might think, oh, Facebook would be great because you could meet girls and whatever. That's kind of the, I think, false legend of of Zuckerberg and the the starting of Facebook. But the point is, they're probably not thinking, gee, what, what should teenage daughters be experiencing online? What should, what are the needs of the menopause market, right? Um, they don't know. They have no idea. They don't care. Like, not not in a bad way. It's just everybody's interested in their own life. They know their own experience. So I think as the tech has matured, then, you know, increasingly we're like, oh, look, here's an interesting, here's some a problem that needs solving yep. for a group of people we didn't know about. And I mean, I think what can be exciting, and I don't, don't think we're seeing as much of it as we should, but we're seeing some is that we, we can have different kinds of people as, entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. different kinds of tech entrepreneurs that they, you don't always have to be a 23-year-old Stanford dropout, you know, that the tools now, you know, there's always going to be certain cutting edge tech, like hard tech, where you do expect probably people who are at the forefront in top-notch universities are going to be the first on that way because that's where, you know, but applications of technology much more broadly it becomes, you know, it's it's not that difficult anymore for people to think up an idea and to launch something. The software development's gotten easier, continues to get easier, and so mm. forth. So there's, I think, huge opportunities. So only in 2020, only 2.2% of female founders in femtech got funded. 2.2%. Wow. That means that 98% of the companies were founded by men. Were you aware of that? Nope. <laughs> and of course, who... Not surprised by it, but... Yeah. Who... Well, yeah, yeah, that's a whole different discussion. 
why is that still, Jimmy? Like, you know, you and I have been raising money from the beginning of time together. Mm. And I count myself lucky. My company was funded in 2020 and $2 million raise, which obviously friends and family. But as you know, I have a huge network and credibility and I was able to have those conversations. But a lot of women who understand women's bodies, right, know what we want, Mm. really struggle to sit in front of those funders who are predominantly men and pitch their ideas. And why are we still in that era of not funding female mm. founders? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any unique insight into that. I mean, I think the, the kinds of things that we're all aware of are problems. So, you know, a, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the VCs have a certain image in mind, a picture in mind of what they're looking for. And that includes actually what I think excludes a lot of different not just women, but all kinds of older entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and things like that. So if the expectation is in order to build a successful company, you need to basically drop everything, sleep under your desk, work 100 hours a week and do nothing else and don't have a life, you cut out a huge number of people who are incredibly talented and who have great ideas. Another element as well is like our whole funding model, which is sort of VCs, taking a punt on something that, you know, 90% of the projects they fund fail. That means what they're really looking for is the one thing that goes absolutely to the moon, which means they're actually, oftentimes, they're not that interested in a business that's a perfectly sensible business idea that isn't going to be the next global sort of dominant Uber, Airbnb, Facebook. If it's like, right, we, we see a market to sell this product or service, and we can see our revenues in five years' time being $30 million a year, well, that's a great business. And, and we think the profit will be $10 million. Right? Great, $10 million a year profit, $30 million a year revenue, fantastic. But the VCs are like, yeah, but we, we're looking for things that are going to be, you know, have 2 billion users in five years. And so I think there's an element of that that is a little more complicated because then, you know, the sources of funding, something like that, are friends and family, which can only get you so far in most cases because if you need capital to expand, more, um, you know, like try and go to a, a normal high street bank and borrow money for a small business. It's just not really practical. It's very hard for them to understand what you're doing. So I think we're starting to see a few things. I'm, I'm an advisor to a company called Clear, which I think is quite interesting. And what they're doing is, and it, it only works for certain types of businesses. So I should say that, and it's it's not very speculative on their part, but what they do for e-commerce businesses that are sort of small to mid-sized businesses is you can connect your accounts to them. So everybody's using, you know, PayPal and Stripe and services like that to take payments. They've got ads. They've got, you know, all these technical systems. They've developed technology. They can, they can, you can connect them to all the stuff. Then they have real visibility into your business and they're able to loan money based on that. Mm-hmm. So they're able to fund people, but you've got to, I mean, you've got to have some existing revenue. So they're not, it's not speculative funding like a VC would do, but I think it's really interesting. And so I think, and it, and it also, it, it means that they can take out of the equation in, in large part, not perfectly, of course, a huge amount of bias around what might be a good business or not. So, you know, if you go to a male banker and you're selling some, I don't know, gadget to wire up your home, right? Then a lot of them will be like, Ooh, that sounds cool. Cause a lot of guys are gadgety. And if you go to the same banker and you go like, here's an interesting product for mothers, it might be a much better, bigger product idea, but 
this guy doesn't mm. know anything about the problems facing mothers and so on. I'm just I'm talking generalities, but the point is they can just look at the data and go, well, we don't care what your widgets are, but we can see that every time you spend $3 on an ad, you're making seven back, we'll loan you some money. So I think that's really interesting, that, that kind of technique for taking some of the subjectivity out of it. And it's a female-led company. Um, hmm. so it's a, yeah. One of the founders. And so it's quite cool. I definitely think that the funding model has to change the way we're looking at uh, as you were saying, the way we're looking at these companies. And I came across, I don't know whether you've seen this in, in the media or not, but an example of how money flows to men rather than women was these two guys in Germany who invented the pink glove. And um, what that was for was they thought that we as women need a pink glove to put on to pull out our tampons, okay? And that company... <laughs> got funded with millions and millions of dollars and then hit the internet, of course, and we were all like outraged. But that just goes to show Fun. how quickly <laughs> men, first of all, think they know what we need. And second of all, then actually get funded. So anyway, they, they, end, yeah. they ended up being closed down. Uh, I think it's called the pinky glove. I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what... What I think is interesting here is I, what I'm always interested in because I do, you know, I'm a big believer in free markets and entrepreneurship. I just think there's a huge opportunity for VCs to smarten up. Like, guess what? You just invested in something completely idiotic and you lost all your money. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe don't do that again. Maybe why don't you get some women at partner level who can spot that this is a stupid idea that only men would think is, is worth doing. I mean, I think that kind of, Thing does point out that diversity shouldn't be and doesn't need to be a sort of, oh, a worthy, oh, we have to do the right thing and be politically correct. It's like, no, there's a huge opportunity here. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not making investments that you could make, and you are making stupid investments because you live your life experience, and that doesn't give you the rich sort of panorama that you might need to judge certain types of investments. I mean, I, I'll give a, a, a counterexample, but it, you'll see the point I'm making. There was this whole Theranos thing where uh, Elizabeth Holmes raised vast oh, yeah. amounts of money for the blood for a completely mm -hmm. yeah, and it was completely fraudulent, and now she's been convicted and all of that. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that is, to me, that one of the lessons were a lot of these investors, I think, were quite pleased to be backing a female founder. Mm -hmm. They they don't want to be sexist, but also when you really looked at who was investing in that, it wasn't the most experienced medical tech mm -hmm. VCs, it was sort of people from outside that world, sort of family funds and things like that. And so that just shows to me, one of the lessons is you shouldn't invest in things you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a VC, that doesn't mean, okay, we'll stop investing in FemTech. It's a huge opportunity. It means you should get some partners in who actually understand it. Yeah. So you're not trying to invest in FemTech having no clue what you're doing. You might as well be Rupert Murdoch investing in blood technology. Yeah. Like, it's completely ludicrous. Yeah. But if, if you think about it, Jimmy, we make up half of the world, right? Definitely. Every woman bleeds. Every woman, well, not every woman, but if you're lucky enough, you have the ability to make a baby. Just those two industries right there are huge. Like, it makes mm. sense that we make it easy for women to have access to the products services and education that they need to thrive, right? For sure, yeah. And so it, it seems like a no-brainer, 
that funders would be flocking to fund these ideas that are led by women. But anyway, wait, that's a whole different podcast. Jimmy, talking about women, you you have one of the most boss lady, strong, incredible wives, Kate Garvey, who I love, <laughs> love, love, love. Actually, I feel like I was sort of part of that whole union in the beginning. Um, <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll totally tell credit for your relationship. But right. but she does a lot of work around the sustainable development goals. And I don't know if she drags you, if you go willingly to, to these conferences, <laughs> but you, you also have been very involved in social justice and achieving these goals and doing what you can to help Kate along the way. What have you learned over the last few years of seeing the progress around the sustainable development goals and all the work that you and Kate have done yeah. in that regard? What have you learned? No, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. The, her work is an organization called Project Everyone, and the idea is to make the global goals famous. And so if you've seen the circular badge logo, her organization came up with that, and they've done all these different events. And, you know, they did a Spice Girls video that got, I don't know, hundreds of millions of views. They've done all of these promotional things to get the message out about the goals. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, you know, if you remember the original goals, the Millennium Development Goals, they like nobody even knew about them mm -hmm. for several years. And then finally, maybe in the last five to 10 years, people in the whole NGO worthy space knew about them. And a few of the companies that sort of Davos type companies that are interested in these broader issues, but basically the general public didn't know. And so the idea is like, if people know about these goals and they've been signed onto by 192 countries, then people can put pressure on their leaders to say, actually, you need to, you need to be doing the right things to solve these kinds of things. Mm. So I think it's been, it's, it's really interesting and it's been very, very good and great fun. But, you know, it's not clear to me that all the leaders are listening. Some are definitely not listening. But also, I'm, I'm more of an optimist. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, you can get quite discouraged, I think, if you, you know, obviously the pandemic has been a huge yeah. sort of setback and, and complication. But you can get quite discouraged and quite negative about, you know, a lot of the big issues facing mm -hmm. the world. But then if you actually take a look at, at what progress we have made, mm -hmm since 2000, it's actually substantial. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are huge problems that we've made enormous progress on. So if you look at, you know, the number of people who are living on a dollar a day mm -hmm. or less, mm -hmm. it has dramatically fallen in the last 20 years, mm -hmm. adjusting for inflation and everything. Yep. So like we are making progress, the world is getting better. And so it's not all doom and gloom. And I actually think that's an important part of the message because if the message is only, oh my God, we're so screwed, you know, it's, we're, it's doomsday then that doesn't really motivate people. Mm. But for people to go, oh, actually, there's some great stuff going on. Mm -hmm. We should do more of that, I think, is much, much more powerful. Mm. My favorite goal, of course, is five, where we invest in girls and women. And as we know that if you invest in a girl, if you give a woman $10, she will reinvest that back into her children, into her community. She might buy a goat. And as we know that when we do invest in girls and women, we can strengthen local communities, strengthen nations, and therefore work our way out of extreme poverty. So I, I love goal number five for that. And what we still have, as you say, we still have a long way to go. And I think that the internet and also the for-profit world, you know, approaching these goals, not necessarily just altruistically, 
but really, you know, forming mission-driven companies, putting the right information out there on the internet and giving access to the right products, services, and, and education is absolutely the way to go. And as you say, in partnership also. So Jimmy, obviously now you've solved the the Wikipedia problem. I know that you <laughs> <laughs> you have got involved in some new things lately, including a, yep. a company called Fandom, which I want to hear all about, and also something about Quiz Night. So tell us yeah. tell us about those two things. So, like what like again, uh, again, you've only you founded like the the, the <laughs> most well known tech platform in the world. Where do you go from there? Like when when you wake up and go, okay, what's next? What's been next for you? Yeah. Yeah. So fandom has been around for a long time now, uh, since two thousand four, two thousand six, sort of founding and got funded. And it's like huge, huge. It's probably around the number Twenty website on the internet, and it's you know billions of pages every month, and mostly about entertainment, gaming, tech, but it's community driven. So it's you know like the I don't know I'm ex- I'm very excited about um, I'm just finishing the current the new season of Ozark, so there's an Ozark wiki with everything you want to know about that and so forth, and then that's done very very well, and uh, I'm on the board there. I'm not involved day to day, but get my hand in a bit. And then I'm working on a few pilot projects. So I've got Wiki Tribune Social, which is a pilot project social network, which is severely underfunded, I would say. But we've got a small community, and we're slowly improving the software. And, and But it's really a, a thought project to say, what would it be like to have a social network with no ads and no paywall where people just pay voluntarily if they want to? What would it, that do to your incentives as the builder of it? So one of the problems I see is like, the social networks have every incentive to make addictive technology, keeps you outraged, keeps you clicking, just so you stay on as long as possible, see as many ads as possible. Whereas I think there's a different way. I mean, I think there's something can be really wonderful about social computing. And so one of the projects of a sub-project, a side project, is like during lockdown, during the earliest sort of lockdowns, I started doing with my, with my family like pub quizzes on Zoom. So mm. my mom loves it and my brothers and sisters and we all get together and we do it. Uh, and we were doing it on Zoom, which is great, but Zoom is, you know, Zoom is Zoom. Zoom is yeah. for people that do business meetings on. Really, it's not a game. And I thought, oh, well, why don't we make a version of this where it's, you know, you're on video the same, but you're all playing the same game together and you're doing a quiz game and you're you're joking around and you're laughing, you're teasing your brother for getting it wrong and you know, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff that people like to do. And what really is part of what's driving my thinking here is if you think about so I, one of my sisters, I probably had hardly talked to her in about 10 years, not because we ever had any massive falling out, just our lives are very different. We live in different places. You say, you know, you chat once a year at Christmas and, and that's kind of it, which is sad, but it happened to us. Mm-hmm. Now I see her every week. We joke around about stuff that we did as kids. I was just in Alabama visiting my mom and dad and my sister took me and showed me her new business she's launching. And like, we've reconnected. Mm. And we reconnected not because, you know, before this, like social media might be, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to click like on a picture of your dog. Yeah. Uh, Right. That's not that social. In fact, I think that's pretty pathetic if that's what we think social networking is. Totally. And it's very different. Like if you get together and do stuff with people and you joke around and laugh and laugh with them. I mean, I follow you on Instagram. I probably put a little heart on a, 
picture from time to time, right? I know. I love really those social? days. Does that keep us in touch? Jimmy, I, lo- I, lo- <laughs> I love it when I see your little heart. I love it. <laughs> but it's not the same as actually sitting down for an hour and chatting, which is what we've just done. So anyway, that's that's my current thinking is let's build more fun things. To do I love it. That are healthy, that are about friends and family. I love it. I love it. Okay. This is the rapid fire part of the podcast, Jimmy. I don't, dun, dun, I don't, dun. Dun, dun, okay, dun. I don't want you to overthink this, but I'm going to ask you some strange questions okay. and like maybe a little Fun. bit like word association, but don't okay. overthink it. Well, okay. Favorite show on TV right now? Oh, Ozark. A really marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The, the new season drops soon. It's fantastic. Okay. I'm really excited about the next. Okay, season. I keep hearing that. I have to. Try to rewatch it. Oh, I you'll love it. I, I well, I, love I tried it. in the beginning and then I sort of tempered off. But you know, I, I'll I'll give it another go. Okay, favorite date night with Kate? Oh, probably Netflix and chill. <laughs> favorite thing to post on social media? Oh, gosh, I mean, I can tell you because I see your social media. What's with all the food pics? Oh, food. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, I love to cook, so I I post pictures of my food. Yeah, I see. I'm a it. very good chef, actually. You are, so. and I see all the veggies, and you <laughs> cook healthy, so it's very, yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah. This podcast is called Sex, Body, and Soul. I say the word sex. What immediately comes to mind? Uh, Kate, not you, <laughs> my wife. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Okay, body. Body. Um, oh, exercise. I'm going skiing in two weeks. So I'm doing every day I'm doing squats because there's a very legendary story of the last time I went skiing, <laughs> which is when you dragged me to the top of a mountain in Davos. It took me all flipping day to get down. I was sitting on the side of that mountain. <laughs> I think I called I, the banana I did manage to get down. <laughs> no, no, no. I managed to get down. You helped me. It was a disaster. So now I'm going skiing again. So I'm very intimidated. As you wow. I am so, so body. excited. But, but was that last, <laughs> the last time you went skiing was with me and Davos? Yeah, that was about 10 years ago. Wow. Okay. Well, take lots of pictures. <laughs> Just don't forget the pizza, right? The pizza. You can go down yeah. and pizza, right? Don't forget the pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, soul. Soul. I, you know, I for me, it's... Uh, one of the reasons I, I always feel like I'm very lucky to have been successful mm-hmm. because I would make a terrible employee because I just get up every day and I do the most interesting things I can think of to do. Mm. So if that means I've become a very good cook, it's because I have a passion about it. Uh, and I end up reading sort of, I read cookbooks. How boring is that? So, you know, it's, uh, for me, that's really what soul is. It's, it's like, finding things to do. And then ideally, I align that with a career so that mm. you can be successful as well. But if you're trying to be successful in something you hate, I don't think it's ever going to make you happy. Mm. Biggest thing you've learned from building Wikipedia? I would say that the vast majority of people are basically nice and decent. Mm. So obviously, on the internet, many platforms, you can very quickly get the idea, holy smokes, the vast majority of human beings are horrible, wicked, nasty people. But that's not really true. That's, those platforms are designed to expose that and to make us be that way mm-hmm. because it keeps us addicted. But mostly, you know, most of the people who come and make one small change in Wikipedia, you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's actually better than it was. And it was just a little thing some nice person popped by to do. So it's pretty positive. What's the number one thing you want your kids to know about the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's really like, life can be amazing and interesting and don't 
don't let anybody divert you from doing the things that are fun and interesting. Mm. So if you find yourself in a situation that's dreadful, get out of it. Last question. Number one piece of advice you would give other tech entrepreneurs starting out? Yeah, I, I think it goes a little bit back to the my answer to soul, which is like if you're analyzing something as a pure business opportunity and you see that it could be incredibly huge and big and very successful, but you don't feel inspired to do it and you think, I'm just going to plug ahead, it's boring, but I'm going to do it, you probably are going to be too bored to make it actually succeed. Mm. So find something that you're really passionate mm-hmm. about and, and you'll you'll be much better off. Even if it doesn't work out, you will have had yeah. fun doing something you care about. Well, that's definitely what I've done with the body agency. I saw a gap. I feel passionate about women. I feel passionate about women's bodies and delivering what we need. And actually, that is my very, very last question to you. <laughs> what do you wish that you had known about women's bodies when you were a young chap? You know, I, I was such a geek that I, I went to the library like any geeky kid, embarrassed to talk to my parents. I read dozens of books, sort of sex education books back in the day. There's so many books out there now that we recommend at the Body Agency because it still is how people are getting their education is through these books. And a lot of parents yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot well, of parents are buying the books for their kids because, they, as you said, they, they're embarrassed to have the conversation. So they're buying the book and they're like, okay, mm. go and read that and come back to me if you've got any questions, which, you know, it's not yeah. ideal, but at least it's No, something. I mean, I can, you know, essentially I can tell a story about that. So my mother and my grandmother, had they ran a small private school where I attended. When, and this is when I was probably seven or eight years old. I remember... And they went to an auction and they bought a whole ton of books from another, like some distributor had gone out of business or something. They bought all these children's books and stocked a huge library. And it was all very exciting. They just bought a job lot, like boxes of books and there were all kinds of kids' books and so on. So we brought them back and we're unpacking them. And there was a book about how babies are made. And I found it and I devoured it and read it. And it was the most sort of amazing thing. I had no idea about any of this stuff. And it was good, and it was factual and so on, and it was written for kids. And then that book disappeared from the library very soon after, because this is in the in the very conservative South in the early 70s. Uh-huh. And I really felt lucky later. I'm like, wow, I didn't sort of find out about sex from some 13-year-old boy. Yeah. I actually read a book. Good for you. How old so were you? I do think it's really important. At the time? Probably seven or eight. Really? like that, maybe nine. Wow. I don't remember. And you were going to the library? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was our library. It was the school that my mom ran. So it was the school library. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's amazing, Jimmy. Well, very sadly, we're out of time. I love you dearly. I am so, so grateful for Great. your friendship and all the adventures we've had around the world. And everyone, yep. go check out Fandom. Go check out Jimmy's Quiz Night. Quiz Night Beyond. Yeah, and hopefully I'll see you now that hopefully the pandemic is going to wind down. I've got to get to England, so I will absolutely let you know. Jimmy, thanks for being with us. Can't wait for what's next. And I'll see you soon, my darling. My love to Kate. Yes, definitely. Bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code 
to get a 10% discount, podcast 10. Thanks for listening.